This Advent season, I've been preaching through the book of Isaiah, specifically through the book known as the book of Emmanuel, which can be found in Isaiah 7 through 12. Now, Isaiah was an 8th century prophet, some 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And by this prophet, we hear and we have heard this past three weeks of three particular promises of prophecies that will be fulfilled. And when we think of prophets, this is typically what we think of, right? We think of prophets foretelling of future event, looking at future promises. We think of their predictive sayings, things that are going to come true because God said that they were going to come true. And prophets did address the future. And Moses gives us a litmus test of how we are supposed to test what prophets say. I'm sure all of you remember Deuteronomy 18, 21 through 22, where Moses says, If you say in your heart, how may we know the word of the Lord has not, has not been spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that this word that the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken presumptuously, you need not be afraid. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God's people were to hear what the prophets were saying and run them through the litmus test. Does the prophet point people to trust in Yahweh alone? And does what the prophet says come true? This is how they knew what a real prophet looked like. This was the test. And as we've seen in Isaiah 7 and 9 and 11, God made future-looking promises to his people. So we must ask ourselves, as Israel had to ask themselves, is what he promised, did it actually happen? Did it come true? And the answer is yes. We have seen a great light that came into the darkness that was born in the form of a baby. His name was Jesus. We have seen that there was a virgin who gave birth to a son. He was God, Emmanuel. We have seen God's people cut down because of their sin to a stump. And from that stump, there, a branch a root of Jesse sprang up supernaturally, anointed by the Holy Spirit, who came and delighted in the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, who wore righteousness as his belt and judged the poor and the meek of all the earth. His name was Jesus, the Son of God. All of these future-looking promises, these promises that the prophets foretold, they came true by the mighty work of and the sovereign power of God himself. In Jesus Christ, the Lord was faithful. And in Jesus Christ, all the prophets who prophesied of his coming were proclaimed to be true because what they said came to pass. And yet, even though we look at these future-looking pr promises of the prophets, that actually wasn't a prophet's primary job. A prophet's primary job was to be a spokesperson from God to his people about their situational context, 
about what they were doing and where they were. And if anyone has read through the Old Testament prophets, we read that they had a very difficult calling. For their primary message was a message of God's judgment because of their faithlessness. The prophets of the Old Testament spoke to the corruption of the people's hearts. They spoke against their personal sins. And as we saw when we went through the book of Micah, we saw that they spoke and prophesied against the societal sins of God's people. They spoke of their corruption, of the sincere worship of Yahweh, their failure to uphold God's word, even of their marital infidelity as God's bride. You see, future-looking promises are glorious in their vision of what, where history is moving, where the story is headed. These, these future-looking promises give us the goal, but the prophets were calling people to the means the means to meet that goal. And do you know what those means were? Faith. The prophet's primary job, his primary calling, was to call God's people back to faith. Over and over and over, God's people were being called to have faith, to believe to have trust in their God. What was the purpose of God's future-looking promise that he gave to Ahaz in Isaiah 7? He was calling Ahaz to believe, but then Ahaz rejected him, and so he gave him this promise. He was calling the people to have faith in him. What was the purpose of God's future-looking promise of the light that would come into the darkness? He was calling his people to have faith in him, that he would do what he promised he would do. What was the purpose of God's future-looking promise of the shoot that would come from the stump of Jesse? He was calling the people of Israel to have faith. You see, even though these prophets were declaring a future event, these prophets were always calling the people to return to the Lord immediately to repent of their sin, to come unto the Lord and find rest. And as we saw, although briefly, in Isaiah 7, 8, 9, and 10, God's people were pretty wretched. Their resume was pretty abysmal. They had completely forsaken their God. They had gone after the ways of the world. They were supposed to be people of light, a light unto the nations. But instead they found themselves, not by chance, but, by, but due to the rebellious and sinfulness of their hearts, they found themselves walking in darkness. But thanks be to God that he comes to wretched and abysmal people. Thanks be to God that he comes to a people walking in darkness. Thanks be to God that he is faithful to his covenant promises. Thanks be to God that he has given us Christ. You see, Christmas is celebrating this first and foremost. God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ. It is in this child that God reveals his love 
for a wretched and abysmal people. The message of Christmas is that Jesus is our hope. He is God's peace. He is the only hope of joy that we have in a broken and fallen world. He is love incarnate that God sent to an unlovable people. But what I want us to see this morning is that this message, this future-looking promise of Isaiah 2 that actually comes before Isaiah 7, 9, and 11 looks to that same hope. And Isaiah makes the same call to the people. He calls the people to walk by faith. Here, Isaiah proclaims a future-looking promise. Notice his language in verse 2. It shall come to pass. He is placing the future of the world in the hands of God himself. All of us know that we can make plans. I made plans about seven different times this week, and not one of them happened, because I have zero control over what happens. There's someone in your family that likes to plan, and then there's someone that typically likes to relax and not have a plan. There's typically someone in every family that needs to go shopping the day before Christmas. And there's those that have had their Christmas shopping done a month ago. But this is not how Isaiah presents the future-looking promise. He says, proclaiming the word of God as good as complete, this will happen. Place your bets, make your plans. The Lord is going to do what the Lord has promised to do. It shall come to pass in the latter days. And now this phrase, this latter days, might be unfamiliar to a lot of us. This is a Hebrew word, beherit, which means the latter part or the end of a period, a future time. And here in Hebrew literature, it is a particular idealistic prosperity promised to the righteous. It's a time that will be withheld from the wicked. And for the prophets, it is primarily their way of speaking of a future period of history, the ideal messianic future. It is the time when the Messiah will come and rule over his people. Now, the Greek translation of this word is eschatos. It is a word that, we, that is one of my favorite words used for eschatology. If you didn't think I would talk about eschatology on Christmas Eve, you don't know me well enough. But this is the root word that we speak of and study the last things. And typically, when we speak specifically of the end times, we speak of the end of the world. But that's not necessarily how the Old Testament prophets saw these last days. You see, the, the prophets saw this as a future time. The final period in history when the Lord would bring about all of his purposes, finally. It is a time where God's promises would come into history, when God's people will fully and really experience God's perfect shalom, his perfect intention of what he intended through the redemption of his Messiah. In this vision, the Lord's house is being exalted. This is what will happen in these latter days. It shall come to pass that the mountain of the Lord, the house of the Lord, shall be established as the highest of all the mountains. 
It shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. You see, these high places, these are the places where other religions and other countries worshipped their other gods. And yet, Isaiah is saying, no, the house of the Lord found in Jerusalem, found on Mount Zion, it shall be lifted high above all the other mountains. I've never been to Jerusalem. I've never seen the mount on which it sits. But all I've ever heard is that it's not much to look at. You see, that's where this poetic language comes into play. This little mountain that Jerusalem sits on is but a little anthill compared to the mountains around it. It sits merely 2,500 feet above sea level. But it is this mount that will be lifted above all the other hills. This puny little hill the Lord will use to raise his house because it, he takes things that are weak and small like a mustard seed and makes them grow. He makes them grow into something more glorious than any of us could imagine. If you're like me, you love mountains. And something that I love is almost as much as the mountains themselves are pictures of mountains. Whether I'm driving through northwest Arkansas and I see the Ozarks, or going into eastern Tennessee in the Smokies, or Colorado in the Rockies, I love seeing mountains. My, my computer's filled with backgrounds of mountains, because I believe mountains reveal the glorious creative power of our God. And yet what Isaiah is describing here is that he sees an even more glorious mountain because God will supernaturally raise it up because that is where the house of the Lord will be exalted. But notice that this is prophetic language. It is poetic. We should not just come to the conclusion that this is necessarily a physical rising of this mountain. It doesn't necessitate that this mountain will actually be raised up higher than the other mountains. Because let us see where the passage focuses us. It actually doesn't even tell us the name of the mountain. Yes, it's assumed that this is the mountain where the Lord's house dwells. This is Mount Zion. But the focus is the house of the Lord. The focus of this glorification vision is that where God dwells, it will be lifted up. It is the tabernacle. It is where God rests amongst his people. It is the house of the Lord where the people came and offered sacrifices and their prayers and their offerings. It is at the temple where they came to receive atonement for their sin, to be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Because the only place that that can happen is in the presence of Yahweh himself. It was the temple. It was the house of the Lord that the law of God would be taught. It was the house of the Lord that Isaiah prophesied would be exalted among all the nations. Isaiah is prophesying of these last days when the house of the Lord will be exalted over every other God in the universe. And this is exactly what P Peter preached in Acts 2 when he quoted Joel. He said, in the last days it shall be. 
in the eschatos, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And then do you know what he said? Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. It's found on page 910 of your Bibles. This, after Jesus' ascension into heaven, is what Peter proclaimed to the people of Israel. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of light. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, Peter says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted by the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus you have crucified. Peter is saying, This is the Christ. This latter day, this eschatos day has already happened this raising up of the temple that the people thought they could destroy didn't work because jesus rose from the dead on the third day this is why jesus said himself destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up what isaiah prophesied was the coming kingdom of jesus this is why the author of Hebrews at the beginning of the books can say, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, these latter days, the eschatos, he has spoken to us by the Son. This is why Paul can tell us about that new house of the Lord that isn't centrally located in a place in Israel, in Jerusalem. For that's not where the house of the Lord now dwells. Where is the house of the Lord now? We've just gone through Ephesians. I hope all of you can tell me where the house of the Lord is now. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple of the Lord. Christ Presbyterian Church, we aren't waiting for a day when the house of the Lord will be raised. We are living in that day because Christ has already come. The day Isaiah promised of the coming Lord, when a babe was born, where he would uphold his government, and he would rule with justice and righteousness. We are living in that day right now. But also notice, notice this language that Isaiah uses. What does he say next? And to this raised up house, to this mountain that's been established as the highest mountain, it shall be lifted above all the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Flow. Every good reader of the passage should ask, how does it flow uphill? Right? Water flows downhill. If, if I know something about gravity, I can tell you water doesn't go uphill. It flows downhill. How in the world can nations flow uphill? We are left with only one answer the supernatural power of God himself. Just as no one can come to the Father except through Christ, it takes a supernatural, spiritual rebirth. It takes the supernatural empowerment of God's Spirit for people to flow into the house of the Lord. It is through the enablement of God's Spirit that the peoples of the earth shall come, shall come to the Lord and say, let us go up to the mountain, to the house of God of Jacob, that he might teach us his ways and that we might walk in his paths. It takes a supernatural work of God of the creation. Right? This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We can't walk under our own strength. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This flowing uphill, this desire to be taught the ways of the Lord is a proper response to the fruit of repentance. It is a willingness to be obedient to the Lord. This is the purpose of the proclamation of the word of God. The, go the gospel being proclaimed it is through the word of God that the nations are now being drawn to Jesus. Being built into the temple of God. Brothers and sisters, this vision of Isaiah was inaugurated in the birth and the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Praise be to God, the nations are being drawn to its Savior through the preaching of the gospel. Praise be to God that our God is faithful to us even when we are faithless. 
Praise be to God that he empowers us with a supernatural power, that he does for us what we can never do for ourselves. Come up to the mountain in the house of the Lord. Praise be to God that he will judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And look at what he says. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. This is what Isaiah reiterated in chapter 11. This king brings peace. And peace isn't just the absence of war. What does he do? He takes tools that are used for destruction, and he doesn't just destroy them. He turns them into tools of restoration. He uses tools of war and turns them into tools that bring life. This is the story of the resurrection. This is the supernatural power of God, where the wolf and the lamb will dwell together, where the leopard and the goat will lie together, where the child and my wife can play with the snake. This is a supernatural power of God. This is the poetic language describing the kingdom of the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, this kingdom has come in Christ. If only in the form of a mustard seed. Only like the leaven and bread. You see, Isaiah saw this with foreshortening as a single vision. We now experience this with a double vision where we look back to the cross and the resurrection, and we know, as, God, as Jesus proclaimed, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is the truth right now for God's people. His kingdom has come. Yet we wait. Yet we wait for his second advent, where he will bring his kingdom in consummation. Brothers and sisters, the message of Isaiah to an unfaithful people is the same message that I proclaim to you this morning. He called Israel to respond to the story of where God's future-looking promises were headed, and he called the people, repent of your sin and have faith in God. He called Israel to respond to the story of God that he came in the form of a babe to set his people free, that he established his kingdom, he has overthrown our enemies, he is reigning on his throne in heaven, and one day he will bring heaven to earth, and his kingdom will have no end. On God's part, this future is fixed, because he is sovereign over his creation. And yet it has presented us here to respond by faith. We must trust in these future-looking promises. And what's so glorious is that God will actually use our response as a means to bring about his fixed plan. That he will bless us along the way that he will nurture us. He will shower his grace upon us. Brothers and sisters, we have been offered the free gift of Christmas 
all of God's promises and blessings are yours through faith in Jesus Christ. You will not ascend into this Mount Zion by your own strength, but only through the grace and love and faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. As Charles Spurgeon says, if he has given you the will to come, he will give you the grace to reach its upper glorious and stand upon it. Brothers and sisters, come to Christ. This mountain is not too lofty for you if you come to it by faith and rest on the powerful and wonderful works of God in Christ Jesus our Lord who has supernaturally overcome all that he created and given us eternal life. Flee from your sin and your rebellious ways. Sin is deadly, but the grace of God is stronger than death. O people of God, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the gospel hope of Christmas. Let's pray.